management and especially engineering management is way more than just telling others what to build. Talking to Amro Musa, an engineering manager at Twitter, it becomes evident that a key ingredient to a good team is empathy. In this episode, I learned from him on what the best way is to lead with empathy in a team and how one should think about the management track as a potential avenue in their career. Enjoy the show. All right, folks, welcome to The Work Item. And I have an exciting guest today. As usual, we have Amro Musa. Emra, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Nice to uh, nice to be here. It's nice to have you here. It's nice chatting with you. So tell us more about what you're working on these days, because I know I encountered you as a career professional through Twitter. A lot of our listeners probably are not aware yet, because we'll and we'll get to that where people can find you. But tell us more about what you're building these days. So I'm, I'm currently an engineering manager at Twitter, supporting the conversational safety team and Our goal is to make conversations on Twitter better by giving people the tools they need to manage them. Wow. That seems like a very extensive topic that it's not very, it's probably not very easy to cover in a podcast. So tell me more about this work. What does an engineering manager do in that context, right? Like, because if I think about conversational safety, there is the aspects of defining, well, what is the space? And this is probably the responsibility of a product lead or a product manager. What's an engineering manager's role in this process? My role is to work with our product manager to come up with the roadmap for the team to, to build and to work, with, to work with designers on the team as well uh, and to support our engineers' careers. So looking for opportunities for them to help them grow. My role is also to work with other people at Twitter who are working in the health space generally. So our team is a little bit different in that it, it looks at and works on conversations sitting outside of our health organization. But there are a whole bunch more people that actually work on these problems every single day, and we rely on their support to, to do our work. So something that you mentioned that stood out to me is you're working on the roadmap with a product person on this. I've never heard of engineering managers defining kind of being a key part of the roadmap, because when you talk to product people, usually that seems like it's their responsibilities, their wheelhouse. Tell me more, how does the engineering manager help define the, the, the roadmap for a product? Yeah, so I think of my product manager as a partner on the team, and it is her decision to ultimately decide what we're going to work on, but she leans on me for technical expertise and actually for my opinions as well. I've used Twitter for a long time, and I've uh, worked at Twitter for a little over seven years now, and so I have some insight into the problems that our users run into. And um, so she expects me to help guide the roadmap as well, even if she is ultimately the one responsible for deciding what projects we're going to work on. How do you connect with customers as an engineering manager? That's a great question. So sometimes that's actually through Twitter. Uh, Other times uh, it's via user research. And uh, for that, we have a great research team and, and someone who supports our team in that capacity to help us learn from customers who might be um, looking for new, new ways to, to manage conversations on Twitter. Exciting. So I will get to that in a little bit, but I want to focus on your career a little bit. I know that you've worked at quite a few companies. There is a spectrum of, you know, from smaller to the bigger like Twitter. What's been the strategy behind it? Or do you have a strategy for how you think about your career? So early on, I didn't have much of a strategy. Uh, I was very interested in startups having attended some events in the Atlanta area. So I I live in uh, Georgia and the United States. And yeah, and so early on, it was about finding startups that were interesting to me, uh, typically in the mobile space and web around the time of Web 2.0 early on, working on a web framework. And when the iPhone came out, a friend and I started a little company and I learned Objective-C and uh, started uh, making apps for the iPhone and 
gave a, a small talk at a conference actually about push notifications. And a year later, that led to, to my being hired at a company called MailChimp, which has been in the news recently, to work on their, their iPhone and, and Android apps at the time. And I spent a great four years there before landing at Twitter. And my strategy is really to move to a new place when I'm no longer learning or growing these days, uh, or I'm no longer excited about the work. So far, I'm still very much learning and growing and excited about the work at Twitter. So happy to be here. What drew you to the mobile space? Because again, when I talk to folks that are breaking into engineering right now, there's a huge focus on web, as an example, where folks think of like, you know, everyone has access to a web browser. That's where my career is. You chose mobile. Why is, why is that? I think I was really interested in the constraints that that existed, exist on mobile even today, right? So devices are, are much faster today. The screens are a lot higher resolution, but especially when I started programming for the iPhone, uh, when it became available, uh, it was it was really, really limited. I mean, it was a low, fairly res low resolution device by today's standards. Of course, at the time it was revolutionary. Um, and it was really interesting to be able to write meaningful software for something that was this little pocket computer. It's interesting because back in the day, I remember the limitation of the iPhone was that there is no copy paste. Yes. And I just remember it's like, no, there, it's doomed. There is no way this is going to pick up. I can't do it. And then look at where, how far it came and how far the technology came. With the mobile space, you probably have to learn a lot. And because things are evolving, there is different frameworks, different tools. You know, if you're building for iOS or Android, it's going to be completely different. How do you learn and keep yourself updated with these latest technologies because, and especially as an engineering manager, because to me, when I think about it, one, you're leading a team of folks uh, that are essentially managed by you, right? So you have to define their careers, you have to help them grow, you have to build a product together. But then you also need to be aware of all the things that are happening in the industry, like a new framework or a new technology that emerged from mobile development. How do you go about keeping on top of all the things that are happening? So I think it's different depending on whether it's for myself and my own technical growth versus my teams. And uh, so for my own personal technical growth, it's basically based on need. If there's a problem I want to solve, then I sort of look into what tools might be available and, and choose the thing I think is appropriate and, and learn that. And I've been an engineer long enough to know that I can spend enough time and sort of figure things out as I go. So I'm, I'm not too worried about that these days. In terms of supporting my team, it's a little bit more tricky because it also depends on their career goals and our team's needs. And it also depends on when we can adopt technology. So depending on, you know, sort of the code base that we're working in or how many versions of iOS we need to go back, things like that, we do we are limited in what we can use. Yeah, so, uh, and then the other thing I would say is I also lean on my team to tell me what they want to work on, uh, the sorts of career and growth opportunities they would like. Uh, for instance, we have mobile engineers on the team that want to learn about, you know, backend systems, right? So that might require them to learn Scala, for instance, right? And so giving them the space and time, maybe finding them a mentor who's a backend engineer at Twitter to help them learn might be an example of that. So it's not necessarily about chasing the shiny new framework that just popped up on Hacker News this morning? No, absolutely not. Um, I think I think there's a time and place for that. And uh, it kind of depends on the, the context, right? So maybe at a smaller company, you might be able to take more risk if, if you're more nimble. If you have a larger code base that's established, it's really more about uh, stability and how do you get from where you are to where you want to be in three years in a, in a way that doesn't disrupt customers. It's interesting the timeline you're describing. So thinking about three years ahead, that seems like a pretty far timeline, right? Because in three years, a lot of things can change. You can have a completely different device at that point. That's right. Um, and you can have new software as well. So on iOS, for instance, um, you know, we have SwiftUI. 
right? That has emerged in the last couple of years. Um, and so, you know, you have to wait until things like that are mature enough to use. Um, SwiftUI is looking pretty great these days. And so it's something I think that, that we'll end up adopting soon. There are other teams working on that. That's not really my domain, uh, but it's not something that you can, like, you know, typically when the new shiny thing hits, it's not something we're able to pick up right away because we need to be able to support users one or two OS releases back. As an engineering manager, do you have to ever push back on your team where somebody comes knocking on your door and says, hey, Amro, look at this framework I just found. Let's let's try building something with it. I haven't had to do that uh, with my team specifically, but certainly in the past, there have been people who are very eager to adopt new things. And, um, you know, it's less about... Uh, maybe pushing back and perhaps about communicating the trade-offs and the con- and the constraints that we have, right? And bringing them along as part of the decision. Going back to your career, because I know we digress in a lot of these engineering topics, but you worked at also a lot of small companies. You know, comparing to Twitter, Twitter is big nowadays. It's no longer that tiny startup that was in 2009. What draws you to those or startups that are, I want to say like size-wise or agility-wise different from the typical fang organizations that folks are so eager to join these days because when i talk to folks that are early in career and this is folks that are listening to this podcast they always think of those as their first choice right i want to work at the googles and the amazons and the microsofts of the industry and you chose a little bit of a different path tell me more about what drove you to those decisions so early on i was really interested in startups um because they grant a lot of autonomy you get to wear sort of more hats than you would uh, at a bigger company. Um, and so in some ways your scope is, is bigger. If, uh, your, of course your impact might be limited relatively speaking as well. And so it's a little bit of a trade-off. I think for me, they were a great place to learn and I might want to work at a startup again in the future. Or what brought me to Twitter and has kept me here is that uh, the product itself is something that I use and love. I use it every day, probably too much. And uh, I feel like I, I have a little bit bigger impact at Twitter, uh, especially given the nature of the work I do. And it's one of those things where folks also don't realize that at a startup that you move much, much faster than at a big company because you're so encumbered by that process and the amount just of planning they need to go with people versus at a smaller company, you can just say, hey, we've done our due diligence. Let's build this and try it out. But with startups, also what comes with it is risk. Did you ever think about mitigating the risk? Because I feel like in bigger companies, say like the financial rewards are pretty obvious right away, right? Like you got a signing bonus, you got all these like the stock options at a startup. Like if this pans out, we'll pay you at some point. Uh, if not, it crashes and burns. Did you, did, how did you mitigate that risk? That's that's certainly a thing. And uh, at one startup I worked at, you know, we weren't sure sometimes when the paychecks were going to arrive. Uh, and that was a little bit scary. You know, uh, at the last two places I've worked at, thankfully, they've been fairly stable. And so that hasn't been much of a concern. Certainly, there are benefits to working at a bigger company. You also do have to be okay with moving a little bit slower sometimes. But And, and that's actually one of the challenges, right, is how, how do you move faster at a big company, right, where you do have some process. Maybe you have a lot of teams that need to be aware of things. And for good reason, right? So, for example, if you make a small change that requires uh, adding some copy, well, that needs to get translated to 40 different languages, right? And that just takes time by nature. Right. And if you want to change your launch date, right, there are other teams you have to let know because maybe they're going to help you with marketing or make a nice video for your launch or something like that. Right. So there are a lot of benefits, too, but they they all take time. And, and so you have to account for those things. And plus, you know, there's also all these legal constraints, right, the accessibility of the global availability and the things that at a startup probably is 
a concern, but maybe not the top concern because you're fighting for the well survival, I guess, is the way to put it. <laughs> yes, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, so we do have to think. I, I, I mentioned internationalization as you did, and and accessibility is definitely something we have to think about as well. And it's really really important that we do. So when you thought about your career and the things that you wanted to do, did you have a career plan? Because what I find sometimes is that folks establish this kind of a five to 10 year roadmap and say, you know what, by 2020, 27, I want to be a senior engineering manager at some big company. Like, the, the, is this the approach that you took with your career or is it more serendipitous where you look for the right opportunity at the right time? It was more of the latter, though early on, I think I had set a goal for my, I, I think of, I don't think of my career as having a formal plan so much as personal goals that I'd like to achieve. And early on, you know, a goal of mine was to start a company and make it big. That didn't happen. I did start a company and it did okay for a little bit, but it never, uh, was huge. But I do have goals. And short term, you know, I want to work on being a better manager, keep my engineering skills from atrophying too much. Um, I do enjoy programming quite a lot. And I, I don't want to lose the sort of muscles that I built over time uh, in that area. Long term, my goals are a little, little more fuzzy, uh, because I and I've mostly hit the goals that I set out to hit early in my career. So I'm still thinking about what I'd like to do long term. Yeah, but very happy right now. How do you gauge the success against those goals because for example you mentioned being a better manager and to me my first thing that kind of went off in my head is like well how do you know that you're a good manager right like how do you judge for yourself that like you know what i i've accomplished what i set out to do that's a really great question so um one way is through peer feedback uh so other managers and actually my team as well you know there are surveys that are are taken internally um and my team could give feedback on me i also ask my team for feedback every week when i talk to them you know, is there something I can do to better support you or the team is a question that I'll often ask them. Yeah. So that's one way. Uh, and then, uh, feedback from my manager as well is, is another, I also do look for, so in the, in the past I have saw outside coaching as well. Like after maybe I handled a situation, it went pretty well actually. Uh, but I felt like I could have done better. And so I, I saw an outside coach to sort of give me feedback on, on things and brought, you know, situations to them weekly and asked for their advice and input to, and said, you know, usually I would come with a plan actually and say like, what do you think about this? And, and is there something I could do better and that sort of thing. You focused on coaching. Tell me more about that. Like how has coaching helped you uh, be a better manager? So uh, as I mentioned, I had a situation that I had to handle um, and it was prior to, because of COVID, I hadn't yet had EM training. I had read some books and um, listened to some podcasts on management. So I tried to prepare. Um but I had to sort of handle a situation on instinct. And what I did in the moment was feel uncomfortable and go to my manager to ask for their advice. Uh, and that ended up being the right call. And, and things worked out for the better in that situation. Um, but at the moment, I felt I could have done better. And so I, I asked a friend uh, for a recommendation for an engineering manager coach. And I worked with someone for, I think, a little over a year, um, meeting weekly initially and then a little less often after that to make sure I could do the best job supporting my team. You know. Is there a recommended approach that you'd say would work for somebody that wants to find uh, a coach? Because you mentioned you reached out through a friend. Is going through the network generally the, the best way to do it? Well, it's the only way I knew how, and I don't have an answer for you. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that, that, again, every situation is very much specific to the individual, right? Like if you have friends that are engineering managers, probably a good idea to ask them. Yes, that's right. You know, I will also say there are, are some companies have internal coaching and resources that are um, 
outside of your management chain. So you mentioned being uncomfortable kind of going to your manager in some cases. You can uh, some some larger companies will have people you can talk to to to, to receive coaching that are outside your management chain. You also mentioned that you are a technical person, so you like that technical side of your career, and yet you decided to go into people management. Uh, tell me more about that decision, right? Because I, I know for myself, I struggle at this point in my career too. It's like, do I really want to manage people? You know, am I going to be writing less code? Am I going to be less involved in technical decisions? Because I'm guessing that the amount of time you spend coding versus dealing with organizational scale problems is going to be shifted significantly compared to when you're working as an individual contributor. Tell me more about that decision. Yeah, so this varies from company to company and you're right. In my case, I do, I spend uh, zero time writing code. But the reason I decided to switch was in my time as a tech lead, I found that helping others grow was the most important work that I did and I felt that becoming an EM would let me do more of that kind of work, supporting others basically. And at the same time, for my own career and my own growth long-term, I thought that it would let me learn an entirely new skill at the same time. And it's been pretty great, though there have been some pretty challenging days. As probably in anybody's career, right? Like not, not everything generally. If everything goes way too smooth, you're probably in the wrong track because you're not pushing yourself out of the boundaries. You're not learning. So that's great. What were the most unexpected things that you saw transitioning from an individual contributor to a manager, things that maybe you were not prepared to see? So I knew that people management was hard. That's what the books focus on uh, rather than process, which tends to vary. Is sometimes emotionally draining supporting others because you have to show up with empathy for every person on your team. And often that means being there to listen to and respond to bad news, really bad news, multiple times a day. And so I try really, really hard to get that right. COVID has made that a lot harder. A lot of people, our parents, for instance, or maybe have elder care or other sort of extenuating circumstances in their life uh, that mean that they haven't been able to show up at work the way that they would want to 100% of the time. And yeah, being compassionate and understanding of that has definitely been something I've tried to do. The other thing that I'll mention is there's a lot more paperwork than I thought there would be. Um, a tremendous amount of paperwork and process in supporting the team. I, I mentioned you know the road mapping process as one thing that's just a few times a year and doesn't take too much time and it's not too bad, but there's a bunch of other stuff maybe around taxes and things like that that you you don't realize you have to do. It's it's the things that you don't know getting into the job where you think it's like, yes, manager, I'm gonna be telling people what to do. And then you realize that, oh, I have to do like quarterly reviews and get all the feedback. Yeah, I I don't know that it's telling people what to do so much as taking a shovel and and digging, you know, a path for them <laughs> so that they can do the work that they need to do, yeah. And you're getting to a very important misconception that folks have about management and the reasons why they get into management is because that first hunch or the first instinct of saying, oh, if I if I only become a manager, I can grow faster in my career because I manage people and then I tell them what to do and they can build the things that I think are great. But in reality, it's not quite that. It's not quite that simple. No, it's, it's really not. I think being a manager is really about supporting your team. That's the bulk of it. And I wouldn't say that it's a way to grow your career necessarily. It's just a different track. You could think of it as parallel to engineering at most big companies, at least. Sometimes the sort of technical lead on the team and an EM are the same person. In my current role, that's not the case. The tech leads on my team are responsible for the engineering decisions and I support them and I defer to them on those things. Sometimes they may have questions and if I have context, maybe I'll point them in the right direction, but they, they generally figure it out. I, I lean on them too. They're also responsible for coaching peers on technical growth. And I'm responsible for helping those peers uh, 
uh, grow their careers and plan their careers. So yeah, so a lot of a lot of what I do is that sort of career planning, uh, helping the team plan long term work, remove roadblocks, give feedback to people so that they can improve uh, their teamwork and so on. I found it pretty easy early on to lean into sort of my technical skills as an engineer, right, and jump in and answer questions because I thought that was the right thing to do or something I could do, right, when I really wasn't a very good manager at the time. But I pretty quickly learned that that took that uh, took away opportunities from my team, right? They're capable of solving these problems on their own, answering these questions on their own. And so if I if I did it, then they didn't get a chance to. And so I, uh, I learned that wasn't the right thing to do pretty quickly. Talking about, you mentioned that it's emotionally draining sometimes to be a manager because you do have to show up with empathy. How you develop that sense of empathy for other people's problems? Because as you said, people might be coming to you with bad news that are related not necessarily to their work, but to their family, their personal situations. And amplified by COVID, where right now you're, it's, you know, a face in a box on the screen. You're not there in the meeting room to, you know, just like pat them on the back and say like, hey, we have your support. How does a manager go about developing that sense of empathy? And like, what helped you personally? Gosh, uh, I think that's a pretty big question. It might vary from manager to manager or person to person. I, I think for me, I just recognize that everybody I'm talking to is human. And my job is to help them do their best work and be able to take care of their family as well. Uh, and so I try to do just that. Um, if there are ways that we can accommodate you know, special requests, then I work to do that. Twitter has been, I think, very generous uh, with stipends for work at home, people getting time off. We have days of rest. Um, I encourage people to take time off so that they can unwind and uh, uh, actually tell people how much time I'm going to take off in advance so that they have sort of rough guidance. You know, I'm probably going to take, you know, four to six weeks off this year and you should take at least that much, right? As an example, so that they they have a floor, I guess, for for um, how much time to take off and how much rest to get. So those, those are some of the ways I personally also have started meditating, uh, I don't know, about a year and a half ago, which is something that I couldn't concretely say how, how it's helped, but I just find myself much more calm and able to react to sort of difficult situations without getting stressed. And so I think that's helped me really um, sort of field some of the, the things that have come my way over the last couple of years. Yeah. I love your approach of leading by example, and especially when it comes to vacation, because this is so common in our industry where folks refuse to take vacation because my manager is working 24-7 and I see emails coming in, you know, on the weekends and on Monday at 6 a.m. and Monday 8 p.m. I will not be able to take vacation because you have that implied pressure, right? Like your manager is always working. Why would you take time off? And you are saying that you're willing to say, no, I'm stepping away too. And so should you. Yes. And, and you mentioned the email thing. Actually, I've started using scheduled emails and scheduled Slack messages as well, uh, which is another way to sort of give the team separation because I don't want them to see me responding on Slack late at night uh, and, and assume that they have to do the same. Yeah. So that's another great point. That, that's kind of the practice of if you see an email that even though it's not an emergency, it still sends that signal of I need to respond now because clearly my manager is responding now. So why, you know, it looked bad for me not to do that. So that, that's an interesting thing. And it's also for early in career folks to realize that you have to set boundaries. Right. This is where you, you have to set boundaries for your own life to make sure that you're able to fit the work in the life that you have and not necessarily have it consume everything that you're doing. It's actually, in my opinion, bad for companies long term as well, because if um, people 
overextend themselves and burn out, they're more likely to to leave and take sort of the um, the knowledge that they built up over time, right? Of, of code base or systems or why we did something a couple of years ago, maybe if somebody forgot to document it, things like that. And so uh, I think for retention purposes, it's really important to to have you know a healthy work life balance or something as close to it as you can get. So I'm curious now that you mentioned work life balance, how do you manage it, right? So you mentioned meditation, you mentioned taking time off. Are there any other practices? that you'd recommend folks that are, again, just starting off and they do not know how the tech industry operates from the inside, how do you manage their work-life balance? Because the pressure is high, and especially when you are new to a company, right? You have that desire to show that I know my stuff, I can prove myself that I can do so much. But what happens is folks overextend themselves very quickly. And they get into this mode of like, yeah, yeah, I'll do this, I'll work until 1 a.m. And then you're right, they will burn out a year in because that's not sustainable. How do you manage it yourself? Like how, how did you find that work-life balance? Pretty poorly at the moment, if I'm being honest, uh, but it's something I'm working on. Um, I've started taking fewer meetings uh, by moving someone on ones to bi-weekly cadences. Um, I've blocked off a few hours in the morning to give me deep work time. So I, I have this advantage in that I, I live on the East Coast and a lot of my colleagues are on the West Coast, which gives me three hours ahead of them to you know, write docs or respond to email or whatever. And so that's, that's been really helpful. Um, I'm also working to find a second manager to help support my team, just realizing that I don't have the bandwidth to do it alone anymore. Uh, and that'll be better for, for their careers and for, as I mentioned, long-term planning. Um, in terms of advice for other people, I think one thing I'd keep in mind is it's most important to work hard on important things not just work hard. And so what that means is think about the tasks that you pick up and prioritize them and uh, do the important things first. And if you can't get to something, it's okay to follow up with the person who requested it initially and tell them you need more time or um, that you won't be able to do something, You know, depending on the circumstances, of course. It depends on how important it is and, and um, who it is that's waiting on the task and whether you can find somebody else to help with it maybe and things like that. I remember, I think it was called the Eisenhower matrix where you have that, you know, urgent and important, yes, uh, not urgent and important, right? Like what you delegate what So that, that is a helpful framework to think about too. And I, I love the idea of making sure that you ask for help. Yes. Because that's another thing that is so important where folks think, no, I should do it myself because I'm getting paid the by the company to decide these things. But in reality, it's, like, it's okay to ask for help. It's not a bad thing. You're on a team. Right. And you have people that are smart working together with you. Why wouldn't you not ask for help is the question. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And we talked about, you know, you mentioned it briefly about the tech lead position and you outlined some of the ideas behind kind of what a tech lead and the difference between a tech lead and the manager is and the, that they are not necessarily responsible for people, but they can influence technical decisions, is one of the career paths more beneficial than the other? Say, if one is given the choice, do you want to be a tech lead or do we want to become an engineering manager? Should one choose one over the other? I think it depends on what you want to do. If you want to be writing code and helping solve technical problems and, and growing others from a technical capacity, you should be a tech lead. Uh, if you want to support teams from a people perspective, uh, then you should become an EM. And so I think it's something that someone needs to ask themselves, right? It's okay to, it's also okay to try being a manager and decide it's not for you and, and switch back. I'm really happy being a manager. I might decide to switch back to engineering for a couple of years sometime, but I think long-term my preference is to 
to stay a manager. So essentially, it, but it's also not a demotion if you decide to do management for a little bit and then take a step back and say, you know what? Nah, actually not my thing. Oh gosh, not at all. Uh, actually, becoming a manager could help you improve maybe teamwork and leadership skills that you might need to reach higher levels as an engineer. So like staff or senior staff engineer at some companies really leans into leadership skills and becoming a manager can help you level up some of those those sort of org, org skills, I would call them in learning how to manage your, you know, stakeholders or uh, influence others without uh, coming over as a dictator. So it's a two-way door, essentially. If you ever decide to go to management, you can do a little bit of management, try it out for yourself. And then if you don't like it, you can always take a step back and say, you know what, actually, I want to go back to the IC track. Like, that's not a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing. And I've known people who have gone back and forth in their careers several times. It's fascinating because I was just talking to somebody that is, again, at that stage in their career where they're trying to decide. And the biggest fear they had is if I don't like it because they've never done it, if I don't like it, that taking a step back means that I take a reputational hit, that people look at me like, oh, you're the failed manager person instead of looking and saying, oh, you're a great engineer. Oh, gosh, I don't think of it like that at all. I, I think of it as um, you went and learned something new and supported a team for a while and you've decided to go back and support your team in a different way. And one of the skills to develop throughout, whether you're a tech lead or engineering manager, is oftentimes influence without authority. And I'm really curious to get your thoughts on that because I feel like it's easy to say, you know, do this thing because I said so, but that that usually is not the right approach to do in management or in any company for that matter. Doesn't matter what career track you're in. How do you develop that ability to influence folks around you, whether it's peers or direct reports, without necessarily telling them that here's what we're building, here's how we're building and why we're building. The first thing is to think about what happens if you do tell people, you know, here's, here's how, what we're building and how. Uh, it's being a dictator. And it means that uh, the creativity of your teammates is stifled, right? They won't feel like their ideas are heard or that they have helped make the decision. And so they'll be less bought into it long-term and they'll probably go look for other opportunities eventually, right? Um, so rather than dictating an approach, uh, which I think is, is really harmful and doesn't leave space for others to grow, I think it's better to uh, think about how to facilitate decision-making uh, from a technical perspective. I want to pause here to say that this doesn't mean um, uh, designing by committee. That's very bad. Instead, it might mean asking questions right, of other engineers on your team to help them figure out how to solve a technical problem that they're on the hook to solve, right? or delegating writing a design doc right, for some new system to them and then guiding them through it and, and calling out edge cases maybe they hadn't considered and things like that to help them ultimately come to uh, sort of the right approach, uh, given the constraints you and your team have. Why is designing by committee bad? And this is, I don't hear a very concrete answer from folks when I talk about it because like, well, yeah, you need to loop in design and data science and product management to make the decision. But it seems like sometimes it's just not the right approach. Why is that? Why is design by committee bad? So I was thinking of technical design and, and maybe a few people on a team and everybody uh, throwing in their two cents and then uh, the team deciding to do all of it, for example. And the reason that's bad is, is uh, maybe you take on work that you don't need to do now, right? So it takes longer to deliver. Uh, maybe the work that you decide to do doesn't make sense. Um, they're not things that you need to build today or ever, really. Uh, in in the context of, you know, the broader context you mentioned of of having designers and PMs involved as well. It's similar. I think the thing to ask there is who's the decision maker um, and who should be giving input and how should that be weighed, right? Like what are the trade-offs the team needs to consider? 
things like timeline, how many people are available to work on the project, and can the work be parallelized to support that many people? Of course, the whole mythical person month thing. And so you mentioned the term decision maker. As an engineering manager, are you the decision maker in the room when things are being discussed? Well, it depends on what the decision is. Um, if it's a staffing decision, then sure, maybe. Uh, if it's a product decision, then no, I defer to my product manager on that. But she, as I mentioned earlier, will want my input. Uh, she's also going to want the input from our designers, from our, the engineers on the team. If it's a technical decision, I'm definitely going to defer that to my tech lead. I might ask about an edge case or two, or ask if they've thought through you know, some situation we need to, to, to consider have they planned the launch, things like that, but they're really good at what they do. So they, they usually have that stuff covered. How do you foster that culture of collaboration across the roles? Because what I've often seen happen in different companies is you have, say, the product team. The product team will come in, they will write a spec document and say, hey, we're building this product. We talk to N number of customers. They desire this feature. Here's what we're building. They then hand off the spec to the engineering team. The engineering team then goes and builds it. Then they hand it off to data science, data science instruments, telemetry. What's that for you? How does that cross-role collaboration actually work? On my team, the process is really different. Um, my product manager will come to me with an idea pretty early, and I will give her maybe back-of-napkin estimates. We will get some designs, Try uh, go through user testing, um, maybe refine those designs. And at that point, we usually loop in our tech leads, which is, this is still very early in the process to give feedback on the designs, on the requirements, uh, what's difficult to build, what's not, what can we build quickly, what's going to take more time and how should we adjust the scope? And then our engineers, the people who are going to build the thing actually set the timeline. Um, and then the question is sort of a negotiation of, well, what are we going to build and not build to get to a, a timeline that, you know, we all agree is the is appropriate, right? Given the, the constraints we have. So, so we work as a group all together from the beginning is, is the answer. And I think that requires just setting expectations kind of in all directions. Yeah, it's working out well for us. So it seems very collaborative. It's not just a one-sided, here's a spec, go build this. And then the engineers are huddling together and trying to figure out how to build this. You know, no, it doesn't. I don't think that works very well because there will inevitably be things that haven't been considered. And you get as you get later in the process, it's more costly to, to adjust and correct. Does it happen often when you're going through a planning process, you're building all these things, and then you realize like halfway through it as you're about to ship it, it's like, hold on a second, we totally missed this one component here that we did not know about. That Not late in the process, typically. Uh, maybe partway through, we might uh, find some small engineering concern that we hadn't accounted for. And when that happens, the question is, how long is this going to take? Is there somebody we can get to help with it? Or do we need to de delay the launch a little bit? And if so, by how long? And then we'll go talk to our product manager, tell them about it, and adjust the date together. As an engineering leader, as an engineer yourself, we talked about your learning too, because you need to learn a lot of things. You need to be able to kind of get the material quickly and be able to understand what's going on. You have to be a bit of a, I want to say like always in learning mode. Like that's your mode of operation is like you're constantly getting new information and try to make decisions with that information. Tell me more about your approach to learning how to learn or balancing it with everything else that's going on in your life because it would seem like it's very hard to even find the time for it. It's It's been a lot harder lately, especially with COVID. I, um, I do have kids, so my time after work is limited. And with the pandemic, I haven't made all that much time to 
learn, you know, new technical skills, frankly, but it's something I'll get back to. And I don't feel too bad about it at this point because I've been doing this long enough to know that given enough time investment, I can just pick things up. I did take some time uh, late last year to read a book about ML, which was pretty neat. So there was a particular problem I wanted to solve. Haven't solved it yet. I'll get back to that, you know, at some point too. Otherwise, recently I've taken to writing a little bit and actually sharing what I know. And what's neat about that is I will hear, you know, uh, feedback on blog posts and things from maybe other managers or other people in the industry. And I, I learn from that. When I try to learn something, one of the biggest assets is focus time. Being able to just sit down for two hours and just do things like try it out. You know, if you're learning machine learning and you're trying to install like, I don't know, CUDA and PyTorch and all that stuff, set it up and try it out. It seems hard to do it in little chunks, right? Where you're doing like 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there, because you're always distracted by something. Have you found, you know, given again, everything that's going on around us and in personal life, uh, how do you structure that learning time? to just sit down, do things in a way that you can actually absorb the information, not just cursory say, oh yeah, sure. Like I learned some basic ML concepts that are going to fly out the window in a couple of weeks. Sure. Yeah. I, I did set aside time. It was mostly in the evenings in that case uh, and some on weekends as well. So yeah, I asked my family to have a couple of hours so I could read or whatever, or wait until after the kids go to bed. And yeah, it was, it was good. And it's interesting that it's also the value of incremental progress is that you're not doing, you know, a whole day of just reading ML books It's just two hours here, two hours there, but put together, it does come up with like, oh, and now you've spent all this time learning it. Yeah, it was over, say, a couple of weeks that I did this. All in all, it wasn't a huge time investment, but it was really interesting to, to learn, for instance, that many people don't start from scratch when they're working with a model, right? They find something off the shelf and train it. How do you learn? What's your, what's your approach to absorbing information quickly? What helps you learn, I guess, is the question. Yeah, I think I think it depends on the context. So if it's something like um, a brand new topic that I don't know much about, then I usually want to start with a problem that I want to solve rather than just writing Hello World or something like this. And um, when I have a problem that I want to solve, I'm motivated to solve that problem. And so I will try to learn things that are specific to solving that problem. Um, so for instance, the uh, without getting into too much detail, the thing that I wanted to solve was uh, recognizing gestures in video as an example. Uh, and so I was learning about different ways you could do image recognition and figuring out, okay, can you can you adapt that somehow to, to recognizing gestures in video over time, right? If it's something like a large code base and I'm tracking trying to track down a bug and I haven't worked in that part of the code base before, the first thing I try to do is uh, figure out like where the the failure is happening, like the root cause, right? And then I try to learn that bit of the code and only that bit of the code really, really well. And then the surrounding stuff with a little bit less detail, maybe I guess might be the, the way to put it. That that's usually how I, I uh, go about trying to track down bits of a large code base that I haven't seen before. I like the level of changing abstraction, where something you need to know at a high level and something you need to know much deeper, because the mistake that I've done early in my career too is when you get into learning something and something like machine learning, you start with this like, oh, okay, well, let me look at all the requirements that I need to do for ML. I need to know linear algebra and statistics, and I'll go pick up a linear algebra book and just start going through that. But in reality, it's like, no, 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 just, just focus on the scenario that you're trying to accomplish. Just set a goal. And this is yeah. back to your original suggestion of like, you were setting goals for yourself. And I, I sense the exact same thing with learning. Set a goal, then execute on it. That's right. And then expand it and try to get to the next level. Yeah. Right, right, right. I love that. 
So we talked about a lot about your life, a lot about your work, your approach to your career. We talked about the work-life balance. What is the one piece of unconventional advice that you would give someone that tries to follow in your footsteps, that works in tech, that are trying to either grow their career or decide whether they want to be an engineering manager or decide if they want to go to a specific company or a startup, something that you learned that maybe was less common or maybe less obvious early on in your career. Yeah, it's definitely that your ideas don't have to win for you to add value on a team. This was something I struggled with early on. Uh, It's more important that you help your team meet its goals and this will help you be a more effective teammate uh, where everybody on the team feels useful. It'll make people want to work with you long-term, which will make you more effective, especially as you go into leadership roles, as we talked about being able to um, influence people without authority, right? That's how you do that. Thinking back in my early days when I was so happy that I got to join Microsoft and I thought that, wow, this is, you know, now the success is when my ideas become reality. And I felt so defeated when you try to like go in a meeting, try to pitch something and they're like, yeah, 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 like this is not it. But we use and we iterated on what you said and there's this other thing. But you're like, but this is not what I put together. This is not my idea. And you felt like so bad about it. And so what you're saying is that that's actually not that bad. It's really not. Yeah, you're, it's okay not to be the person whose ideas are always implemented. It's it's the risk that we take in our I want well I guess risk maybe not the right word but it's like it's it's kind of the the known unknown of your career it's that there's going to be ideas not all of them are going to be implemented and that's okay it is okay and I think it's part of being on a team right is understanding that uh, the team everybody on the team is going to have ideas and we need to figure out what's what are the right ones to to solve for. And I always think that on my team, people are way smarter than me. So people probably have way better ideas than, than myself. <laughs> well, I think if you're on a team with a lot of people who are smarter than you, you're probably going to be learning a lot. So that's actually like a good thing in many ways. And to that extent, I actually have one last question because we're talking about the, the smarter people. How do you find imposter syndrome? Because this is something that also is so common in our industry where folks think that even years in their role, even years in their career, in the whatever company or startup they're working in, they sometimes feel like, wow, I actually don't know anything. Like, have you encountered that? How do you fight that? (laughs) I think a lot of people have encountered this. I certainly have in my time. I think there were two things. uh, There are two things I'll talk about. The the first is an experience that I had uh, a year or two ago um, where I was meeting a new colleague and somebody introduced me and I uh, sort of out of instinct made a self-deprecating reference to myself. Um, one of the things I care a lot about is accessibility. And and I worked with a lot of other great people to help establish a practice at Twitter. Um, and I had said, oh, but I'm not the expert. I just, just something I care about or something to that effect. And then the person I was meeting said, oh, you should be kind to yourself. Uh, don't downplay yourself. And so that actually made a mark on me. Uh, and then the other thing I'll say is uh, it's helpful to think about the goals that you've set and what you've achieved and see that you've made progress over time and maybe remind others when they do the same. So if you have a teammate that has done something really great, brag them up in public on that, on your Slack channel, in your team Slack channel, or maybe privately to your manager or both, right? So that they get the recognition for that work and that will help build their confidence. If there's one thing or the takeaway from this entire podcast is talking to you 
it comes through so clearly that one, you care about people, you care about growing them, and you care about doing this in the right way, where it's not about you, but it's about your team. It's about making sure that they're successful. And that, by proxy, will lead to product success, that will lead to career success, and everything else. So it's a great opportunity to talk to you. Amro, where can folks learn more about you online? Because again, they would benefit so much to listening to you and hearing from you more. So where can folks go to do that? The best way to do that is to follow me uh, on Twitter. My uh, handle is amdev, A-M-D-E-V. And I have a blog at amro.co where I sometimes blog about technical stuff, but most recently about management. I'm envious of your five character Twitter handle since this is like impossible to find these days. So kudos on that. Well, thank you, yeah. Excellent. Well, Amro, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, thanks for having me. 